Welcome to Dose of Support, a podcast for healthcare professionals to preserve stories and provide a dose of support to each other through community and shared experiences. We're going to share successful and sometimes not successful self-care methods. And I'm your host, Dr. Vanessa Casper, a nurse practitioner and a professional just like you. Remember, I'm hosting this podcast, but I'm not your healthcare provider, and my guests aren't here to provide healthcare advice either. But we do encourage you to seek out care from your own healthcare professional. And although we're sharing stories from healthcare, I intend to fully adhere to HIPAA and protect privacy. And remember, this podcast is not related to any employer. It's hard out there, so let's find some self-care in healthcare. Stay tuned, everyone. Huddle up, self-care squad. I hope everyone enjoyed the long Labor Day weekend we had last weekend. And if anyone listening internationally is wondering, like, what is Labor Day? Um, It's a national holiday here that we observe the first Monday of every September. And while it has a lot of cultural um, implications, like it usually signals the end of summer and that kids are probably going back to school and a lot of people change their wardrobe or their eating habits, hashtag pumpkin spice latte. Um, But really, Labor Day is about it goes all the way back to the Industrial Revolution. So workers were working 12-hour shifts, seven days a week. There was child labor and there were no safety. Like people died on the job all the time. There was no safety, no benefits in the workplace. And workers really fought to have safety in the workplace. And really, that's one of the reasons we have holiday pay. So I know a lot of you are like, girl, I worked last weekend um, and I, I got you. I, I've worked all the holidays too. I, I get it. So you can thank the labor movement for your holiday pay or your PTO because they really fought for that. So we kind of observe that here in America um, one day a year, right? It's like still total, it's still shitty, right? Um, (laughs) Anyway, cheers to you if you had the day off and good for you for getting some holiday pay if you were on. I hope that you had a good shift. Um, This week, we have something that's really near and dear to my heart. I love the environment. I love being outside. Nature is a huge part of my self-care. And we actually have someone who's an expert in healthcare and the environment and is working towards creating more sustainable healthcare. And so if you don't believe in climate change, we've got some interesting facts for you. Um, And it's really educational. So this uh, speaker is a wealth of knowledge in a, a place that really needs more attention. So I hope that if you care about the environment and the world that we're gonna leave our children, wildlife and nature, if you if you care about any of that, I hope you really enjoy this episode. We have a two-parter because it was just so much information, um, but it was it's really going to be worth it. So I hope you stay tuned. Mm-hmm. 
Welcome back to the podcast. We have Dr. Shanda Demarest. She holds a doctorate in nursing practice degree, is licensed as a registered nurse, and she specializes in environmental sustainability in healthcare and in the health impacts of climate change. So this is like the area she works in. She will share a story about how she got to this point. Welcome, Shanda. Hey, hey, Vanessa. Thank you so much. Happy to be here. So, Shanda, you have worked as a nurse and you are in this specialty area within nursing that is really unique. And that's one of the reasons that I wanted to invite you on pod today. But I, I just want to backtrack a little bit. What, how did you get to this point? That's a great question. And, and it's an exciting story, too, I think. Um, what kicked off environmental sustainability slash climate slash planetary interests for me was really just growing up as a kid in an awesome place in the little southeastern corner of Minnesota where I was surrounded by nature. And we call it the Seven Rivers region, the Cooley region. Basically, you know, you walk out your door and it's bluffs and rivers and lakes, the driftless region. And I'll I'll explain what that means too. It's a pretty large swath of area in Minnesota, Wisconsin, and Iowa where the glaciers did not come through and basically plow the land flat. So since the glaciers didn't come through, we have bluffs and coolies and valleys everywhere that that really changes the landscape as compared to a lot of, you know, what you expect of of Minnesota. So that was my childhood. That's where I grew up for the first 18 years of my life. And what that meant for me and my family was spending a lot of time outdoors. Um, it, It was an agricultural community in the sense that we had, you know, apple orchards and strawberries and other fruit production. But for my family, we, we weren't farmers. We, um, basically just spent a lot of time foraging in the forest. The, the men in my family, um, hunted for morel mushrooms and ginseng and other little swamp critters in the winter. And I got to do that with them. So early on, basically, I came to understand nature as a part of life. And I came to understand humans as a part of nature, not separate from. And um, basically, that path led me to when I went to nursing school, you know, several years down the line, I wanted to integrate that. And I wanted to infuse whatever my nursing practice was going to be. I wanted nature to be a part of that. What really sparked my interest was when I ended up um, working as a staff nurse in Minneapolis, seeing the waste and the energy and the plastic, plastic, plastic waste, everything that it requires um, basically to take care of a patient and thinking, well, here's a major gap that needs to be addressed. You know, we're trying to make people healthy in this tertiary health care system. And yet it was really evident to me that we were also sort of participating in I don't want to sound, you know, grandiose, but like destroying the planet at the same time with the same tools and resources that, you know, that we were trying to use beneficially, it was damaging our environment at the same time. 
So let's backtrack because it seems like you've just always had this passion for the environment and nature. And then you're like, I'm going to be a nurse. <laughs> so how did you, how were you like, I need to get into healthcare? And it, and was that, I mean, maybe I just didn't glean it from what you said, but I'm thinking like, if you wanted to help people in a therapeutic way because of what you had experienced in nature, is, is that kind of what you, what drove you to nursing in particular? <laughs> not exactly. I left that detail out because it's not quite as exciting as as the as the nature part, but I made a good waitress. I was a waitress at an American Legion um in my little hometown and basically really enjoyed working with people um with veterans specifically. And I was a first generation college student in my family. Um wonderfully supportive family, but didn't have a lot of career guidance. And so ended up taking the nursing path because I felt confident that there would be a job for me at the end of the degree, that it would be, um, you know, a solid living where I would be able to have a lot of variety, a lot of options. Didn't know how nature was going to fit into that at the time, um, but that became more clear as I as I got deeper into practice. So you created your own path, <laughs> it kind of sounds like. So to speak, yeah, I suppose, with some awesome mentors along the way, which I can tell you more about as well. Shanda really has such a unique, I think, role that she's playing in healthcare that I think that's why I wanted I, I wanted you to be on. But I'm thinking like, you're you're really like a nurse for the environment now. So you you worked at the hospital it sounds like for a little while and then you made this transition. So can you talk about that a little bit? Totally. Absolutely. And um I guess you know before I launch into that I I do want to say that I really appreciate how you described bringing other healthcare voices to light in addition to nursing and what my experience has been at this crux of environmental sustainability and we'll call it healthcare, not even nursing, is that almost the whole health professional voice is underrepresented, is sort of quashed. And so I, I get to participate in in something similar as yourself, you know, trying to bring the patient lens, the human lens to environmental and climate science. Do you mean like just to clarify, do you mean like in a legislative way, like in politics, like when you're making policy, or do you mean like when you're talking to a scientist and you're doing research? Both. So, oh, okay, that's yeah. great. <laughs> or or not? It's maybe it's not great. Interesting. Because, well, right. It's it's not great because you'd think if you know, for those of us, and the cohort is very small. But for those of us who work at the intersection of healthcare and sustainability, one would think that the end user of the healthcare system, which is the patient, right? You would think that that view, that that lens is what drives decision making, is what helps us, you know, basically craft our argument for sustainability in healthcare because it's the humans that matter at the end of the line, but that's not what drives it. Um, and I don't want to get too off track here, but it's interesting because, you know, in America, we have this really 
complex business structure of our healthcare system. And at the end of the day, these hospitals need to make money to keep their doors open. And when we work to help hospitals and health systems become more environmentally sustainable, it's a dual argument. It's number one, you know, a healthier planet will support healthier humans. But number two, it's also a more sustainable, you know, healthcare system will help save you money. It's, it packs a little bit of a different punch. It's not always human driven. And, and maybe we've seen that in bedside nursing too. You know, it's our job as nurses to advocate for this patient, you know, for, for the person and their family. But we also know, you know, as we're taking care of these people, there are a lot of other things that play within the system that affect the care that you're delivering. Absolutely. I mean, the social determinants of health. Yep. And as we know, environment is a major part of that. Okay. So I, I mean, this is a really unique perspective. I don't feel like an expert here or that I got any training in school about this. And we went to school together for the listeners that are wondering. Um, we we did attend the same the same program, but clearly Shanda went a different way. And so I'm wondering, how did you get training to be basically an environmental nurse? Mm-hmm. Very, very self-taught in some respects, I would say. Vanessa, I remember Googling, literally, when I was in probably undergrad, where can a nurse work in environmental sustainability? And there were a few different organizations that bubbled up, and and I'll list them just for folks who are interested, you know, who are listening to this. The primary leader right now is Healthcare Without Harm, which is a global nonprofit. And these are the healthcare sustainability leaders who are driving a lot of the policies and protocols and basically networking for hospitals and health systems that want to reduce their ecological footprint. And at the time, so this is in about 2012, 2013, that I was starting to learn about what possibilities were for for nurses working in this field. There weren't graduate degrees that applied to nurses specifically around like environmental sustainability or or even like masters in sustainability you you can't really go that path with a nursing degree and so i actually ended up um meeting this phenomenal professor at the university of minnesota named teddy potter she's an icon in this space and i told her a little bit of my story and she said well sounds like we have a doctorate program for you and at the time, it was one of the only places really where I could learn how to become a leader and apply that to whatever my specific interest was. And that sounds really vague. And it, and it kind of was. I think, I think it's supposed to be so that there's room for people to expand the horizons. 100%. And so this this graduate degree in health innovation and leadership, basically, um, you know, fr- from that, I gained the tools, the confidence, the network, 
um, to become a leader in healthcare sustainability. And so when I say it was a little bit self-made, basically during that graduate program, everything I did in all of my courses and all of my practica, if it was a course on healthcare finance, I was looking at the the financial value of sustainability in healthcare systems. If the course was on culture, I was getting more into, you know, climate culture within within health systems. And so I, I flavored everything that I could with sustainability and with climate change. And from there, I was able to build that network. Um, and at some point, it, who you know really matters. And so getting getting that opportunity to um, say, hey, I'm a student, I'm, I want to learn about what you're doing. When you get that student title, um, it, it's a little, <laughs> you know this, right? Like it's a little bit of a key to. Um, it breaks down a barrier. Yeah, totally. So, okay. So you kind of self-taught, but you had, you had a lot of support, it sounds like, and you made some really good connections and you, your through your work as a nurse, you came to understand the healthcare system and its problems too. Cause I think identifying the problems is, is how you can eventually work on solutions. But now with your, with your day-to-day work, what would you say a typical day as an environmental nurse is like? Yeah, I'd love to talk about that. Um, and one, I think, clarification that's valuable to make right, right off the bat, you know, when we think environmental nurse, sometimes we can almost see that title within public health nursing. Um, but sort of the more traditional environmental health nurse is somebody who works with patients, oftentimes in their homes, more specifically around environmental issues that are not as complex as climate. So like lead in water, um, you know, maybe specific air pollution related to highways or power plants directly on scene, that, that type of thing. So that's, um, so in environmental health nursing can be related to like directly acute environmental issues on site, especially if you're working with patients in the home. So can work directly with patients in that sense. That's more the traditional environmental health nurse. It also might be called like occupational health nurse. Um, and, and really what I do is, is work directly with hospitals and health systems to help them reduce their environmental ecological footprint more broadly. So I don't work directly with patients. Um, basically, a day in my life is um, I work remote, which is fantastic. Um, I I can be anywhere in the country working with hospitals and health systems, um, and and that's fantastic because sometimes you'd think this work needs to happen on site, but really it's more of um, it's almost like project management. So I have a portfolio of about 120 hospitals, and most of the hospitals I work with are in the northeastern part of the U.S., but I also work with many in the Midwest who are members of this network at Practice Green Health. And what that means is that these hospitals are deliberately trying to be more environmentally sustainable. 
And our network comprises about 1,100 hospitals total, which is somewhere between 20 and 30% of all hospitals across the country. That is not enough. <laughs> it's not enough. I was, I right. was going to say that is not enough, but it sounds like the hospitals really, or like the systems, those are your patients <laughs> in a way. I love the way you said that completely, completely. And it's interesting because some of these health systems, you know, are, are participating in more environmentally sustainable initiatives, basically you know, as there are a lot of different motivating factors that bring systems into this network. Girl, you can just say money. You can just say <laughs> money. like yeah. money drives the decision-making in healthcare a lot of time and it's not right and it's not okay and it doesn't feel good, um, uh -huh. especially to a nurse because we're, we're concerned about people and their lives and, and, uh, but the bottom line does matter to some extent. And I'm guessing that people reach out to practice green health. And I hope it's okay that we use the name in yeah, this episode yep. to get the work out there. But I, I'm guessing people reach out because it is affecting their bottom line, the fact that they're wasting and not, um, and, and that they're contributing to a problem. You bet. You bet. And, and it is. It's, it's really valuable to be a nurse in this organization because, sort of as I was mentioning before, because we can bring that human voice back into the sustainability conversation and continue to amplify that. And, and so when I work with these, um, basically my contacts within these hospitals are really diverse, which I love. So either they might be sustainability directors or sustainability managers proper, like that's an actual career path. Um, or they might be facilities managers or food and nutrition, or maybe I'm working with leaders within environmental um, services within hospitals. So all sorts of walks of life are my quote unquote patients. And <laughs> I get to work with these people to say, hey, you know, what are you doing in your hospital in your health system how you know what is your vision of environmental sustainability and then sort of level setting and say okay well here's sort of our menu of initiatives our menu of different options that we can do together to help you become more sustainable in you know your your climate footprint or water or chemicals, or energy, or food, or transportation, or, you know, what, whatever is in, is um, most palatable for these health systems to, to work on, to be more sustainable, that, that's where we come in. And we do a lot of work with data, and benchmarking, and digging down into the metrics of, you know, how to help these hospitals keep track over time of how they're performing from a sustainability aspect, but then also the goal setting piece. I think we should talk a little bit about maybe lay down some like some facts for the listeners. So like how bad is the waste in healthcare? Like what is, give us a picture of what we're looking at for sustainability and climate change and the facts on the ground, because climate change is real y'all. 
And if you're listening to this and you're not sure, sh- you're not sure, Shanda's about to lay down some facts. <laughs> yeah. Well, from a waste perspective, there are estimates that one person in a bed over a 24-hour period can lead to about 29 pounds of waste per oh, day. Oh no. Think of, think of like holding, I mean, I'm not a very strong bowler, so my bowling ball weight is like 10 pounds or less, but think about how heavy that is. And so per patient, per patient, per day, it's like a couple bowling balls. Exactly. Of, of exactly. Waste, of non-recyclable waste. Right on the money. And part of the problem is and this is this is more global it's broader than healthcare but right now our recycling industry across the planet is a total cluster we're learning more and more about how the traditional waste and recycling stream that we relied upon in the United States was this is going to sound really yucky was to collect our recyclables call it mixed call it plastic whatever and ship it overseas, mostly to China. And a couple years ago, I believe this was at the end of 2018, early 2019, um, China placed an embargo and no longer accepted our trash, really our recyclables, right? But but our waste. So no, we don't want your shit. (laughs) And so from that... What do we do with it? You know, what do we do with this massive amount of material that is theoretically recyclable, which means that you're breaking down whatever these materials are and creating something new. But in the United States, we do not have the infrastructure to actually take those recyclables and create something new with the volume that we produce. Do you have stats on our our production versus... European production of waste or like do you know where do we fall because our healthcare, I I think that we waste a lot in our healthcare system versus other healthcare systems in other countries but I don't really know what I can tell you is that you know despite this crappy recycling industry right now even our best hospitals who try to recycle and are doing the the absolute best jobs have recycling rates of approximately 40%. These are the folks that are doing the best work. So what that okay. means would be 40% of their stream is diverted from the landfills and then you have, you know, another 60% that some of it might be hazardous waste, some of it regulated medical waste like blood and, you know, bloody gauze and that sort of thing. And then the rest just goes into landfills oh so 40 percent is the best that a small fraction is able to do (laughs) it's not funny but like i'm i'm sitting here like oh god (laughs) totally it's horrible it's really bad and that's the i mean the hospitals that are able to do that are the little pipsqueak hospitals that have tighter control over you know over behaviors. So when we're talking large systems, you're looking at recycling rates of 15% if you're lucky. 
Oh, and this is just recycling. This isn't even energy, right? This isn't water. This isn't all the other aspects of a footprint that a hospital contributes to. So, so talk climate for, you know, for instance, we have estimates, this is, this is healthcare without harm data that the U S healthcare industry comprises approximately 10% of the greenhouse gas emissions across the country. OMG. Yeah, let me describe like what is a, what is what are greenhouse gases? Basically, we release carbon dioxide primarily, but other greenhouse gases as well, things like things like methane. And when these compounds are released, they build up in our atmosphere. So it's sort of like a like a thick blanket that keeps getting thicker and thicker and as the sun's rays come down it basically the the sun the warmth gets trapped in our atmosphere and this is what's called the greenhouse gas effect what's funny is i feel like i learned about this in like elementary school and high school and all of a sudden people are like no that's not real and and i'm over here like Dude, it's Isn't it real. Fascinating? Yes. Mean, the climate deniers are a special breed. And that's an industry, Vanessa. Basically, planting seeds of doubt is something that the fossil fuel industry puts so much effort into. And it's more than just the fossil fuel industry, but that's primarily it. Um, basically, it is advantageous for these industries that make money off of selling the things that are contributing to climate change. It's advantageous for them to convince others that it's not happening. Because if we all tomorrow say, ooh, burning oil, burning coal, that's bad. I'm not going to do that anymore, whether individually or collectively, then you have some of the largest industries on the planet tanking overnight. Again, it comes down to money. It's really daunting. It doesn't leave a lot of place for hope right now. Um, so let's just, let's take a pause because I think that um, if someone is listening, they're probably like, that Dr. D sounds a little um, conspiracy theory I mean, you have data that's backing it up. So we know how much waste one patient can generate. But um, what about sustainability? What, what statistics do you have to give us on sustainability? Well, I, I think it's important to, to understand the relationship of sustainability and climate change and waste because that's not that's not always really clear. Basically the idea of environmental sustainability is to reduce the human impact on the environment which is planet earth, right? To a point that we are sustainable for future generations. So it's the idea of living in balance homeostasis. Our bodies are all about that, right? From a, from a nursing perspective. Right. Climate change is one slice of sustainability. Um, I think the, the concept of planetary health is really valuable to think about too, because you have 
other things on this planet that are, that are important to keep in check besides climate, you know, water, for instance, um, just degradation of the environment in general related to deforestation or related to industrial agricultural practices, etc. So it's balance of all of these intertwining, interconnected systems. If we as humans want to collectively continue to live here in a healthy way that's equitable for everybody, we need to keep these other aspects of our sustainable system in check, such as climate. So many interesting things that you just said that are really, really resonating with me. Um, so keeping people healthy within our current climate, we are already seeing lung disease from poor quality air. We are already seeing, you know, we, we see health, health implications all the time and, and, we see water quality lead to illness. And so I just, let's take a break. But when we come back, let's talk about the actual implications of our environment on people's health. We will be right back after this break. Welcome back, listeners. We have Dr. Shanda Demarest, who is here um, as our environmental systems nurse, and she's here to talk to us today about the health implications of her environmental work. So, Shanda, take it away. What are we, we know that air quality and water quality and waste does impact health. So, so can you outline that a little bit for us? Yes, absolutely. I think I like to do this from a climate change perspective, just to put some bounds around what we're talking about. Um, so, so more specifically, what are the health impacts of climate change for people? So there are actually some pretty compelling national assessments out there that, that help inform not only climate scientists, but also health professionals when we're thinking about why does this matter, you know, why does this matter for people? Um, I think the first one to be aware of is something called the National Climate Assessment, which is something that's released every four years, actually by by Congress. And so this was released in 2018 during this administration, and it has a really rich chapter, just basically consumable by, by lay people, about what does climate change do to human health. and the Centers for Disease Control has an excellent um, basically guide for something similar. So does the World Health Organization. Um, it, you know, most state health departments have guidelines around the health impacts of climate change that are more specific to region. And so, so really the basics of human health come down to, um, you, you talked about one big one, Vanessa, which is air pollution or, or air quality more broadly. So when we think about climate and we think about weather issues that happen with increased temperatures, more volatile precipitation, um, basically fluctuations in patterns over time, which is what climate change means, um, we're, we're seeing things that deeply affect air quality in regions of Minnesota, such as 
um, higher particulate matter. So bad stuff that's spending more time in warmer, denser air that is not healthy for us to breathe into our lungs and contributing to you know, not only acute issues, but also exacerbating chronic issues like, like asthma, like COPD, bronchitis, et cetera. And as you can imagine, you know, folks who have chronic issues in the first place related to their health are more impacted by these climate, by these climate challenges than folks who are healthier in the first place. And maybe people need to hear like, oh, I don't have asthma or I don't have COPD, but a lot of folks listening, maybe you can relate, like, do you have seasonal allergies? Because this will make that worse also. And we all know allergies are horrible. And so think about how someone who has a chronic illness would really be impacted as the environment changes. Allergies is a really great example, specifically for Minnesota as well. So as temperatures get warmer at higher latitudes, some of the critters or some of the plants that live in those regions are more proliferative. Take ragweed, for example. With longer summers and longer growing seasons, when I say longer summers, I mean related to temperature, hotter um, hotter days, hotter nights, Ragweed has a longer growing season and it grows at higher latitudes, so more northern in Minnesota because it's a little bit warmer up there than it had been previously. Now, in Minnesota, in the past 20 years, there's been almost a three week increase in number of ragweed allergen days. Oh. I mean, for allergy sufferers everywhere, I mean, I know that Shanda's focusing on Minnesota because she has that data, but just think how this could apply to the state that you live in or the country that you live in. I mean, ragweed alone, so allergy sufferers alone are going to be having a harder time. And so this is just one health issue. It's not other lung diseases. It's not heart disease. It's just one issue and it's seasonal allergies. And like, think about how much worse that can be because of climate change. Exactly. And then you have more people coming into urgent care or, you know, in some cases, the emergency department, if you have somebody with underlying conditions suddenly exacerbating their situation with, you know, with allergy flare-ups, you have increased burden technically on the healthcare system, right? People needing care. Yeah. I can actually speak to that because I every every spring I have folks that that are having runny noses and they're having just terrible symptoms of seasonal allergies, but they actually are having an asthma exacerbation that was precipitated by the allergies. So they had underlying asthma and their allergies flared up so bad that it flared up their asthma. So it's like a, it's like this cyclical effect and it, it, you know, a domino effect where one, one thing goes, goes off with your homeostasis and it affects other parts of your body. So I think people might be like, ah, seasonal allergies. I don't have them. Not my problem. Not a big deal. But like, clearly the the increase in the health burden and that is also financial is is big it can be really big 
what a perfect analogy too, right? You know, our systems in the human body can do deeply affect, affect one another. Um, and same situation with, you know, with our healthcare system. So, you know, we, we've talked air quality, we've talked, well, you know, allergies are directly related to that, related to temperature. Um, we're coming right into the summer months right now. And basically in the last approximately 19 years, I think, and this is NASA data, each year has been in the top hottest ever recorded. So, in, you know, in a little bit, it's like, well, what difference does that really make? In Minnesota, if we have a little bit warmer winters and a little bit warmer summers, well, you know, we have air conditioning or we have fans, we have access to, um, you know, community centers where we can protect some of the more vulnerable people who, who maybe don't have air conditioners, et cetera. But this is global. So extreme heat in nations or sometimes whole continents like Australia contributes to long-term drought. It contributes to increased likelihood of wildfires because you have plants um, and in some cases crops that are just tinderboxes waiting to, uh, you know, waiting to spark up. So then that will affect our food supply. I mean, and then right it's on. just this chain reaction. And then, you know, then people are going to have famine. And so drought, famine, fire. I mean, I don't know how to get folks to care. I don't like if if you are a privileged person right now that is not worried about those things then please recognize that you're you're very fortunate but there are folks out there that they can't outrun the climate change they can't outrun a drought or a famine in their area they don't have the means to relocate i don't know how to make people care about other people and as nurses like that's kind of like ingrained in us a little mm -hmm. bit because because we care about other people, but I don't know how to uh, how to tie together. Like, don't you see that the changes in the environment are going to affect people, and people are going to suffer, and that's what we need to prevent. And anyway, so I'm just like on a soapbox for a second because I'm I'm thinking about the people that that die in wire in wildfires every year and um people that i mean mudslides earthquakes I, I just you think about all these natural disasters that happen but it's not just that it'll there will be food shortages there will be clean water shortages and i think that how do you how do you make someone care about people that won't be able to avoid those problems <laughs> In fact, I mean, they're estimating, I believe this is a UN um, estimate, that by 2050, there will be approximately 250 million climate refugees. So this is actually a cohort. People who flee whatever land they're living on because it's no longer hospitable for human life. And a lot of this is happening in the continent of Africa. Um, basically there are increased droughts, but, but not only that increased floods. So they're affecting farmland, whether it's subsistence or otherwise. And these people are, you know, no longer able to feed themselves, their families, or, 
or, you know, potentially earn money from what they're growing. And I think people are, I think people are like, well, that's happening far away. And that's because of their infrastructure or whatever excuses people come up with to explain away the problem. But I just want to say 250 million climate refugees by what year? 2050. Okay, so that's in our lifetime. So that's that's in 30 years. So if anyone listening to this is going to be alive in 30 years, 250 million climate refugees. Where do they I just go? want you like where do they go? What what resources are they going to use cuz like these are going to be people that are starving, people that need a place to live, people that need shelter and safety and like we can change things now to help them 30 years from now or to mm-hmm. have something set up so that the problem is smaller or to have infrastructure in place to be able to handle the problem when it comes. I, I, I just think this is this is bigger than one podcast episode, but I think, you know, what can we do right now, Shanda, to change our practice in healthcare or as individuals, maybe we have non-healthcare workers listening to this or students that are listening to this. What can each person do now to help this problem? Yep. Yep. That's the whole point, right? Um, And, you know, we've only talked about a few health impacts. There are a lot more, you know, there are vector-borne disease, there are extreme weather issues, there, there are water issues. And, you know, when we're thinking about how do we avoid this in the future, how do we act on this now? Basically, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which is from the United Nations, it's it's this collective, um, you know, basically, how do you, the, the IPCC is a report that says what's going on and what do we need to do about it. They're saying that we need to cut our emissions by 50% by year 2030. So this is in a decade. And in order to prevent the worst of the worst, we need to cap our global warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius. And this is just jargon, but basically they're saying that approximately um, by 2050, we need to be net zero emissions. No more greenhouse gases released into the atmosphere, which coincides with when they're anticipating all of these massive climate refugee situations. That's just to clarify, that is just um, to stop the, uh, that's not necessarily to prevent stuff that already happens. That's to stop things from getting worse. Exactly. Okay. So like mudslides and earthquakes and all the other environmental problems that we already have will still be there. This, these measures that we need to take that they're recommending are so that things don't get worse in 2050. Correct. Or or that, so that they do not continue to exacerbate it to happen more frequently. And, and one quick quick clarification I want to make is that, um, there's not strong evidence that earthquakes are um, related to climate change, but but hurricanes are a big one. So okay, very good clarification. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, and I'm sure some of the listeners are like, yeah, I didn't know that either. So good, 
good to know. I mean, you, you're really an expert in this area. So, um, so back to like, what can individuals do and how can we help? So I want, I want to be hopeful about this. Um, one thing I just want to share is, you know, there are a couple ways that we think about taking action. There's individual action where you try to decrease your own ecological footprint, become more personally, environmentally sustainable. And then there's collective action, which is largely um, related to political, you know, legislative will, um, or, you know, even when we're in 2020, corporate will, or basically, you know, what are what are our industries doing to help prevent our collective imprint? Curiously, in 2005, um, British Petroleum, actually BP, created the idea of a personal carbon footprint to detract from the reality that corporate and collective climate imprint is basically actually what really matters. So we have a little bit of this hopeful idea that individually, if we all are taking action, that it's it's the solution, but it really needs to be all individuals plus corporate plus political. Yeah, I've I've heard this I've heard this before. Like I I drive a hybrid, I cloth diaper my baby, I've eaten vegetarian. I've heard that these things help, but it sounds like it's kind of like this deeper subliminal messaging that like the individual is responsible and not the larger corporations that are in this country. And so um, that is that is something very interesting that you you can make better choices. Individuals can make better choices like mm-hmm. that. But it sounds like what you're saying is like, that's really not the bulk of the problem that contributes to the problem anyway. Exactly. Exactly. And I think personal action is really important because it ties you more directly with the issue. You become more knowledgeable of what the bigger picture problem. Yeah, you're committed. You're engaged. You care. Exactly. And and you care about your children, you care about your grandchildren. Those are actually two really strong um, angles to help convince others that climate is an issue, Just thinking about how it can affect future generations directly associated with them. But, you know, individually, there's data that shows that what contributes, even if this whole idea of personal carbon footprint is a little bit of a scam that was created by corporations to help us make you know, help make us think that this is our problem in the first place. Um, even if that's, you know, not completely transparent, there are still ways that we are individually contributing to greenhouse gas emissions. Driving, you talked about, um, or, or basically transportation that is burning fossil fuels, gasoline, diesel. Um, the other major one is electricity use. And so that comes down to like, where are you living? Are you living in Phoenix, Arizona, where the average temperature in the summer is 107 degrees Fahrenheit? <laughs> and and those folks are running their air conditioners a lot. To survive, not just yep. to be comfortable, to, to yep. live. Um, or, you know, how are you using electricity in your home in addition to heating 
you know, air conditioning? Are, are all of your lights on? Are your electronics running? What sort of appliances do you buy? Do you buy Energy Star appliances that use less? Or, you know, how are you, how, what, what does your diet look like? Vanessa, you mentioned that you're a vegetarian and basically we've learned that diets that are more plant-based or entirely plant-based are far less energy consumptive in creating the same amount of calories. So for instance, if you want to eat a steak, what went into growing that cow? What went into feeding and watering that cow and processing that cow and shipping it across the country? Are you eating local and sustainable? We in the United States know that um, food travels approximately 1,500 miles before it gets to your plate. Holy buckets. So where do you get your food? What are you eating? How much are you eating? Are you actually wasting? And if you are contributing to landfills, which pretty much everyone is, you know, then that content breaks down and contributes to methane, which is a greenhouse gas kind of circling back. So a lot of personal actions. Um, collectively, from a healthcare perspective, how do you extrapolate what you're doing in your own world to being a bedside nurse, for instance? So transportation is one, um, is one example. There are some hospitals that have electric vehicle fleets. So they're Mobile healthcare units are electric buses. Their patient transport is electric. Maybe they are incentivizing their employees to take, you know, take the train to work or to to bike, to walk, to participate in active transport. Um, that collectively has an impact. Or from an energy perspective, um, this is interesting. Operating rooms actually are the most energy consumptive, waste productive parts of a hospital. I did not know that. Yeah, it's it's nasty. We can talk more about that maybe on another thread. But um, hospitals are able to tweak their ventilation and their air controls within not only ORs, but basically across the hospital to only have those systems running when there are patients present. And there is no evidence that by setting back operating rooms or basically shutting off those ventilation air controls when a patient is not in there and then restarting it again right before a case, there is not evidence that that has poor clinical outcome. So we've just been doing these things over time because that's the way the system is set up. And we have facilities managers in hospitals that are programming this, but you know, we don't have climate scientists saying, well, here's the right thing to do, or we don't necessarily have practitioners who are working together with the facilities managers and the climate scientists to say, how does this impact patients? Of course, we're all siloed. I have a question about how do, so we have a lot of people that are in healthcare that are listening, um, or students that are entering a healthcare related field, or lay people that have an interest or are engaged in, in the healthcare sphere somehow. And my question, I, I, I like to ask questions for those people. Um, how would someone working in their own healthcare environment make changes or bring this to their leadership team saying, 
I really care about this and I think our team should care about this too. How do you recommend people bring this at a smaller level to their healthcare teams? Great question. From the healthcare perspective, speak from your licensure, speak with your credibility and what you know about human health, right? What is your expertise? And so we've talked a little bit about health impacts of climate change. Um, and what we know is that when nurses, when physicians, when public health professionals go to leadership with evidence and tying that into locality or regionality and saying, our health system is contributing to this problem and learning more about how climate and how environment impacts the patients that you're directly caring for. Um, and starting with leadership, you know, talk about it with colleagues and peers, but really for the systems that are doing the greatest work, it's backed by leadership. It's really difficult for grassroots efforts within healthcare systems to take root and to, you know, bleed up into the culture that way without it being supported by the I'm, leaders. I'm nodding my head right now. I, I'm I'm like, yeah, I, I don't even know how I would bring this to the leadership where I work. And I honestly have, I have a great relationship with my leadership, but I think a lot of people listening are probably like, I don't have the expertise to say, hey, this is a problem. I don't have... I don't feel like I have a voice for that. And so you mentioned a few resources earlier, but do you have other other resources that you could direct people to where they could um, bring this to their leadership? Totally. Um, I'm really glad you asked that. So I have two really specific examples for nurses, and then I'll speak a little more broadly to health professionals quickly. Um, so number one is the Nurses Climate Challenge. So it's nursesclimatechallenge.org. And that's actually um, hosted by Healthcare Without Harm and the Alliance of Nurses for Healthy Environments, which is a clutch organization to be aware of. So the Nurses Climate Challenge basically puts a lot of what I've said today in a nutshell, in a digestible form so that one, nurses can learn more about the basics, but two, they can talk to their leadership about it and talk to their colleagues about it. In fact, we have an email template queued right up for nurses to just download, customize, and fire it away to their nurse manager, basically giving the exact argument that I just did. All right. So the nurses listening you you guys there's no excuse now you have your you have a voice for this and if you care about this you have the tools to take action and so i don't want anyone here to feel intimidated by you know their their lack of knowledge in this area because it sounds like a lot of that legwork has been done for you so you have the capability to move forward on this exactly and there are even templates for letters to the editor or templates for talking to your hospital administration about how to commit to renewable energy within within your health system. It's it's really diverse. It's pretty broad. Um, so check that out. And, and then the other one is called Nurses Drawdown. So nursesdrawdown.org. And this is actually a spinoff of Project Drawdown, which is an international effort basically to help 
us understand how to draw carbon out of the atmosphere, how to prevent it from getting there in the first place. Okay. I w- I've seen it in my feed and I, w- I didn't know what it was, but now, now that makes more sense. Yeah. And, and it highlights a handful of different specific actions nurses can take, not only in the U.S., but all across the globe, where they can help contribute to making the planet healthier, um, specifically you know, in, in respect to climate change. And then the health professional one that I want to mention for sure, Vanessa, um, check out the Medical Society Consortium on Climate and Health. And this is a really sleek resource because it actually has a repository of all of the state clinician climate action groups. So that's a lot of a lot of jargon there, but basically there are hubs of health professionals in a lot of states. I want to say like 35 now that have come together collectively as health professionals to take action on climate change. So the Medical Society Consortium on Climate and Health excellent hub with lots of educational resources. Okay. I, yeah. I mean, we've talked about a lot of agencies in this episode. So, okay. So I think that we're going to wrap this up and we'll call it part one with Dr. D. Um, and I think what we should do is another episode down the line and um, get that out to listeners to really get more into this because it's it's a, an important enough topic and there's so much that needs to be put out there that I think we should cover. So um, I want to thank Dr. Shanda Demarest for joining us today. Shanda, if people want to reach out to you directly, is that okay? Yeah, absolutely. Certainly I can share my email for you to toss in the show notes. Okay, I can do that. And then if people want to reach out to me, they can do that at hello at doseofsupport.com. You can find us on Instagram at Dose of Support or in our private Facebook group. You can submit your story via a survey monkey on our website. And you can always donate to the show on Patreon and get some actual input into what goes into each show. Um we will have a part two with Dr. Damaris, and I thank everyone for joining us today. Stories matter, and now we've captured another one. We'll be back next week with a brand new guest and a whole different story. Until then, make connections and give each other a dose of support. Dose of Support is written, produced, edited, everything by me, Vanessa Casper, with exclusive music by Rafael Sequeira. Don't forget to rate the show or leave feedback wherever you listen. I'm punching out until next week, where we try to find some self-care in healthcare once again. Mm-hmm.